one, so a bit of a sound check. Hello? Anything? So you have nothing going. The light's on. Someone's at home. One, two. One, two. Hello? Okay, is that this one or that one? Hello? Okay. So we've got this one going, but that one isn't. Does that matter? Okay. So, I might just speak a little bit louder. Sorry, this one's in my face a little bit. Okay, how are we all this morning? Well, I must admit, when I came to uh, prepare this sermon, it felt, uh, felt a little bit like a spaghetti junction. There are just so many things mentioned in these uh, 20 verses that, that need to be understood. There's John's baptism. There's the Holy Spirit. There's gospel proclamation. There's the word of the Lord. There's the name of Jesus. There's the kingdom of God. We have opposition, miraculous healing. And to throw into the mix, we have demon possession, exorcism, and sorcery. Obviously, there's not enough time to go into all of these. Um, Certainly not in enough uh, detail uh, to answer the questions that can arise from such topics. Um, But what I want to do is just help us understand the general picture of what is going on and, and pick up on a, only a, a few critical applications. Well, to do this, I'm going to just ask us to take a, a little step back and consider briefly two major themes. That is, the kingdom of God, sorry, the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that's... Hello? Okay. So the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit. It could be argued that the kingdom of God isn't a central theme in this passage because it's only mentioned one time. However, the kingdom of God that Paul was arguing persuasively in the synagogue in verse 8 is also evident elsewhere in the passage. See, all the hallmarks of the presence of the kingdom of God is clearly evident Um, as recorded by the events in verses 11 and 12, where there's healing and casting out of evil spirits. Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And in Luke 10, he uh, instructs his disciples, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So healing and the casting out of demons are some extraordinary signs of the presence of the kingdom of God achieved in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. As the king, Christ ushered in the kingdom into this world by his very presence and by his redeeming work on the cross. He has now opened it up for all that who would believe in his name. This is what God had promised. That he would have a kingdom full of people, known and loved by him for eternity. It's a different kind of kingdom that that was expected. Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. It is a heavenly kingdom. 
to be established here on earth in all its fullness when he comes again. Ever since Christ returned to heaven, this kingdom on earth is present wherever the Holy Spirit dwells. And it can be found amongst all true believers. For the promise of salvation includes the pouring out of his Spirit on his sons and daughters, and that he will take up residence with them. It just so happens that this is the very thing that Peter, in the beginning of Acts, shows what is exactly happening on the day of Pentecost. God's Holy Spirit is given to the followers of Christ. Well, from that incredible day, the book of Acts tracks the expansion of the kingdom of God and how the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, actively and powerfully working through the apostles to not only lay the foundations, but to establish the continuing work of the gospel proclamation through people reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have already seen how this work spread from Jerusalem into the rest of Judea, through to Samaria, and have begun to see it reach to the rest of the world. Each step of the way, each frontier being broken into, we see the Holy Spirit manifesting His power and presence within the new believers by signs of tongues and prophecy. See, this was so that a world that was divided by narrow-minded religiosity blinkered commitment to religious traditions might open their minds and see God's kingdom is not limited to a particular people or group. That it's not earthly. God's kingdom spans across these divisions and brings about peace and unity amongst people because it's no longer about us who make and break our own rules but it is instead about grace. It's by grace alone does this new heavenly citizenship happen. A gracious act of the Holy Spirit to give us new birth, to help us see and trust in Christ alone. Our membership is a gift that we don't deserve. So with this backdrop, Let's take a look at verses 1 through to 7. Well, last week we heard about Apollos and how he was eloquent, competent in the Scriptures, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. Yet he was pulled aside and taught more accurately He was lacking the full understanding of the gospel. Not that he was teaching incorrectly. It was about him teaching not the complete um, story of the gospel. We are told where this deficiency lay. At the end of verse 25 in chapter 18, Apollos taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. We also hear of John's baptism in the first seven verses 
of our passage today. And similarly, it also appears to be deficient. I'm not saying that it is always being deficient. It was perfectly valid for a particular point in time. John the Baptist was of the old covenant, not of the new. Only just, mind you, uh, but nevertheless, the new covenant established by Jesus Christ did not happen in John's lifetime. And so with the baptism of John was also the old covenant. It symbolized a cleansing of sin. The preparation that was required to receive into their presence the Holy Lord Jesus. The full plans and purpose of God in Christ was yet to be revealed. Because Hebrews 1 tells us that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the greatest prophet. John's baptism gets us so far, but there is more to come, more to understand. John taught, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism that really counts, that really makes an eternal difference, is the one Jesus performs, and that is of the Holy Spirit. It's not simply about repentance. It's about being identified with the death of Christ and also his life. It is being baptized with the Spirit, being born of the Spirit, being given a new life, a new heart with new desires. It is only through this rebirth that can anyone be part of the eternal heavenly kingdom. When speaking with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, about what must happen for us to be able to see the kingdom of God, Jesus says in John chapter 3, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. The Holy, Holy Spirit's work is essential, just as essential as the sacrifice of Christ. Christ has made a way possible, but the Spirit applies the salv- this salvation to the believer by faith. It is with this understanding Paul asked the disciples in Ephesus, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, they said, no. We haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. Notice how the dialogue goes. By looking at verse 3, we can see that Paul has assumed that because they haven't received the Holy Spirit, they mustn't have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. On the flip side, the logic of Paul says that if they had been baptized into Jesus, they would have received the Holy Spirit just as much as night follows day. And so he inquires, 
Well, as to what baptism, therefore, have you been received? Out to which they confess John's baptism. So Paul goes on to encourage the disciples to believe not in the promise of someone who is yet to come, but in the one who has come. See, they're introduced as disciples and believers in verses 1 and 2. Saints of the Old Testament, you could regard them as. But now there is no need or reason to remain following old prophets of the past. He spoke only on behalf of God when now God has come himself, both in his person, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And this is what they do. In verse 5, they are baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, into the Lord Jesus. And what immediately follows is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And like other significant progression of the kingdom, there is a distinct extra step between believing, even baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the coming of the Holy Spirit through the laying of the hands of Paul. This may be a, a little confusing, seeing as I've just pointed out that Paul had assumed that if they had believed, they would already have the Holy Spirit. Because that has become the normal thing to happen. I want to make sure that we understand that there is no separation between believing in Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. See, there are some, I'm aware, there are some churches and there are some teachers who would look to this chapter and to other previous episodes in Acts and say that this is what one should expect every time if you genuinely believed. That to know you have received the Spirit and therefore are part of the kingdom of God, God, something miraculous should be witnessed. That you should be able to be speaking uh, to speak in tongues, for example. Well, this false teaching can cause unnecessary doubt and worry to many true believers, especially if this kind of experience has never happened to them. See, what the false teachers fail to recognize is that the book of Acts is not a book to establish foundational doctrines of the church, rather to remember that it is a record of a transitional time between the Old Testament and the New, between the Old Covenants and the New Covenant of God. And that many disparate groups needed to be joined together by the Spirit in Christ. And it required those distinct pioneering conversions to be accompanied by signs to corroborate that this is a new reality. Chapter 19 is in fact the last episode in the New Testament in which this distinct separation between believing and the coming of the Holy Spirit with signs. The normal practice now is that you believe and you receive Paul in his letter to the Ephesian church states quite clearly the fact that believing and receiving of the Holy Spirit are of one act. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And here... There lies the application. 
or question for us, each one of us this morning. If this is true for the Ephesians, is it true for you too? As Paul asks of the Ephesian disciples, so I'm asking everyone here, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This question has no regard for what you think you have done for God. It doesn't ask about your faithfulness in praying or even playing your part in the practical ministries of Abbey Church. Paul isn't asking about your prayer life, your behavior, your attitude towards others. He simply asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Are you able to answer this? I expect there are a number here this morning that may struggle to give an affirmative answer to this question. But I hope that uncertainty doesn't arise from believing the nonsense that demands that you should be able to speak in tongues or prophesy as proof of having received the Holy Spirit. But putting that aside, this is as serious a question as you can get. Or to answer, we must consider a few things. Firstly, what or who is the object of your belief? Secondly, have you truly believed? And thirdly, to confirm that both points one and two are true, what evidence is there in your life that the Spirit dwells inside you? For the Spirit not only brings life, but also continues the work of sanctification and transformation in every believer. Well, the disciples in Ephesus had a deficient understanding of the gospel. They didn't know all that they needed to know about Jesus. Is Jesus, as revealed in Scripture, the one that you have put your trust in for salvation? Do you know Christ? Do you recognize him as as Lord as well as Savior? Because if you don't, you haven't believed in the one who John said was yet to come. His sandals that he was too unworthy to untie. If Jesus isn't your Lord, then you have denied his deity. You've denied his authority. You've denied his majesty. And have put your faith in a person who cannot help you. Because your Jesus is not God. Your Jesus doesn't exist. If you've embraced Jesus as Lord and try and to follow and obey, but haven't had your heart melted or your affections, in, uh, affections impacted by the love and glory of God as shown in the cross, then your Jesus isn't glorified and you esteem him too little. This Jesus doesn't exist because Jesus is glorious. Have you believed in the idea rather than the person? Do you like Christian morals, the fellowship of believers, or even love the idea of a Christianized society, and yet have kept Jesus as only part of the package and not the central joy and hope? Well, then your Jesus remains a sideshow and as effective for your salvation as a character from a fictional story. For the majority, the second point can be a problem. Have you truly believed? We have a tendency, don't we, 
to doubt that we have believed enough. When we look at our lives and think, how on earth can I be born again if this is the strength of my conviction or the state of my life? And at the same time forget that the faith the side of a mustard seed can achieve so much. It may be such that you have truly believed in Christ or the Bible and are safe in the kingdom of God, yet have experienced little of the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Finally, we have to look at our own lives. Is there evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That you have been born again? See, the presence of the Spirit affects the born-again believer in many ways. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. You may know lots about the Bible, but the Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts. See, knowledge alone can cause people to be arrogant and uh, self-assured, but the Spirit teaches us to believe and obey. Are you increasingly learning the Lord in this way? The Spirit of God is a comforter. Another, just like Christ who comes alongside us and in our suffering and trials brings joy to our hearts. Have you been able to rejoice in the Lord during the tough times as well as the good? The Holy Spirit transforms. A true believer is saved from death to life so that he may be restored into the image of Christ. Is there less and less of the world in you and more and more of the Lord? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident, especially at times of testing? Does, what, does how you appear to others match what is going on inside your heart? Flesh gives birth to flesh. So if your good demeanors and, and your things that you do is by your own efforts, then you are foolish according to Paul. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. The Spirit also sanctifies. He sets us apart from the world and changes our heart's desires. And we begin to hate sin and instead love righteousness. Do you find evidences of those same desires in your heart? Obedience comes from joy. And not from obligation. Our prayer life is just that. It is our life. In childlike dependency, in the spirit, believers cry, Abba, Father. Do you live your life on your own strength or that by the Spirit? Asking God for all things just like a child. The Spirit empowers true believers to speak boldly of the Lord Jesus. The Spirit can embolden followers of Christ to make decisions that seem contrary to the logic of the world, but faithful according to God's will. Do you live in fear of the world? Or are you confident and stand alongside Jesus Christ and are willing to be counted as fools for Him? Well, these are just some, just a sum of the indicators that spiritual life has begun in you. And where there is life, there is hope. Having believed, 
You are marked in him with a seal and the promised Holy Spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Although we may be born again, the influence of the Spirit in our lives can vary. But he always should have an influence. And though we have wobbles, we should experience a deepening of all that is of the Spirit. None of us has, have surrendered everything to the Spirit of God. But shouldn't that be our goal? That we give all of ourselves to the influence and leading of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is God. And as we've seen, he can bring life where there is no life. Bringing believers into the kingdom. He is the Spirit who applies the work of Christ. And by doing uh, these things, brings the presence and reality of the kingdom into our midst. For both believers and non-believers. The kingdom of God is that final expression of the work of Christ on the cross. This is where all history will ultimately end up. Christ reigning over his people, having crushed and destroyed the kingdom of this world. And it is this news about the kingdom that obstinate people reject in verse 9. Yet the unstoppable Progression of the word of the Lord. The good news of the kingdom carries on reaching all of the province of Asia, we read. And within just a couple of years as well. Paul's work of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom is accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. For we're told God was doing extraordinary things. Extraordinary miracles through Paul. And what we get to see in verse 11 and following is a response to the demonstration of power. We can either see the demonstration of the Spirit's power to what is behind, to the cause, to the reason of the miracles, or we can look no further than to what we want our eyes to see. Whether it's healings or exorcisms or loving fellowship amongst Spirit-transformed people, if all we want to know is just that which is before our eyes, then we are dangerously short-sighted. We can participate and even use the name of Christ, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have looked beyond to Jesus and to know Him. For that is what the Spirit's work is for, to bring us to glorify and know the Lord Jesus. However, This is what some of the Jewish exorcists were doing. They saw the work of the Spirit and wanted to have that for themselves, but at a distance. They will have the power, but keep Jesus at arm's length. They didn't understand, though, that they were playing with fire and that one day they would get burnt. Verse 14 tells us of that day. The seven sons of Siva a Jewish high priest, try and grab a bit of the action, a bit of the Spirit's power by saying, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. See how distant their claim to that power is. They have to invoke the name of Jesus via Paul. 
they clearly do not want anything to do with Jesus, yet they want what he has. And so instead of a power-tripping, spirit-bashing spectacular, there comes a chilling response from the evil spirit. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? The power of Satan and his demonic forces are no match for the Holy Spirit, and neither for those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Yet the power of evil is much greater than the strength of men. You see, it only takes one man possessed by an evil spirit to beat up seven. We need to recognize that we are subject to spiritual forces, either for good or for evil. Paul reminds the Ephesians in his letter that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark, uh, dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. The sons of Siva took on powers that were far greater than they, thinking that they could don the armor and will the power of the Holy Spirit just through using the name of Jesus. But in reality, they had no armor. They had no power, for they had no relationship with Christ. Well, when the news about what happened reached um, the Ephesians and Greeks, it says they were seized with fear. But it wasn't the evil spirits who they now feared. Instead, it was the name of Jesus, the one who has the greater power. They could now see that the the miracles that they once coveted were not just a show, but a demonstration of the power of Jesus over the darkness of this world. And so that is why they held the name of Jesus in high honor and why many uh, people came to believe in the Lord. And we see that their response was one of unequivocal turning away from the life that they once had. The teaching and the, f- and the wealth of their former, former life literally went up in smoke, costing to the equivalent of millions, millions of pounds of today's money. Could you imagine that? As shocking as this would have appeared, it is a small response in relation to the seriousness of evil and the riches we gain in new life. We need to be extremely careful that we keep looking beyond the outworking of the power of God to Jesus, to whom and from whom all the blessings of his kingdom flow and give him the glory and honor. That is not to pass by the fact that there could be some amongst us who may enjoy the blessings of this church, of Christian fellowship, which is the power of God demonstrated through his people, but haven't been born again. And without that new birth, you remain unknown by the forces of evil with regards to authority and power. Therefore, make it a priority to ask God for the Holy Spirit. For Jesus said, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? 
Or if he asks for an egg, will he give uh, him a scorpion? If then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? One final observation. Look at both verses 10 and 20. See, through the proclamation of the kingdom of God over two years, the word of the Lord was heard in the whole province of Asia. And in verse 20, it says, because of the life-changing response to the demonstration of the power of the Spirit, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew. Two very different ways that the word went out. Teaching and radically changed lives. So we need to call upon the Spirit to fall upon us. And perhaps for some of us here this morning for the very first time. So that with Jesus exalting hearts, radically transformed lives, that we may play our part in carrying the wonderful news of the kingdom of God to a world by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. To, to quote Spurgeon, to finish. If our church is to be strong, and if it is to make lasting impression upon its age by bearing a telling testimony to the truth, we must not only have the Spirit of God in His essential operations, but in His soul-enriching, heart-delighting, life-sanctifying power. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you empty-handed. Empty vessels, Lord, we bring nothing of our own. And I'd like to say that we would come to you, God, as childlike, asking you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. For those who do not believe in Jesus here this morning, that as they have heard the good news of the Kingdom of God, as they have seen the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of, of believers, that they may want a part of it themselves, that they may be, see beyond that and see the Lord Jesus Christ and come to repentance and new life. God, we want to be a church in which the Word of God spreads from. We want the, the good news of the Kingdom of God to come from Abbey Church into this dark world. And what we've learnt, Lord, it is a dark world where there are powers and forces that are beyond our human uh, capacity. But Lord, we do ask that you would pour your Spirit out so generously amongst us, Lord, that we can go out confidently, boldly, without fear of, uh, of being conquered by the opposition. For we know that 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 Satan has been bound, that the strong man has been bound, and we can plunder his world, his kingdom, in the strength of the Spirit. So we ask God that we may take these truths in this, these 20 verses and apply it to our hearts, and may it bring us to our knees, and pray, Abba Father, fill us afresh, we pray. Amen.